Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Terre Haute is a city filled with churches. This is St. Benedict Catholic Church, and it is one of our oldest. The cornerstone was laid on the Ohio Street location near the end of the Civil War in 1864 to serve the city's sizable German Catholic population. With a towering steeple and beautiful stained glass, it truly is a gem in the crown of Terre Haute's history. These days, when people think about church, they think about sacred space, holy space. But when the Jesus movement was just getting started, when people thought about church, it wasn't sacred space, it was sacred people. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to come live inside us after we had been rescued. And when these rescued people gather, Even in groups of two or three, the Holy Spirit is active in them and between them and around them. So the original idea wasn't so much a house of God, but the people of God. I've seen and been in some beautiful church buildings, but the real beauty is what happens in and among and between the worshipers, the stunning beauty of a community that is learning to follow Jesus. I want to tell you a story today about when I first came to Cross Lane. It was 1992. Um, I I submitted my resume in June. It took them until October to hire me. It took forever. I was like, come on, man. And and they finally pulled the trigger. It was awesome. But in the very first interview I had, it was three hours long. I'll never forget. It was on a Saturday afternoon. I I was working two jobs over in northern Kentucky. I had been up for 36 hours, okay? And, and they didn't want me to be at church the following Sunday. So I'd been up for 36 hours. I was out on my feet pretty much. Drove over here three hours. Had a three-hour interview. And then was supposed to drive back. Thankfully, Brad Branham said, you can stay with me. Because Brad, I knew Brad and, and uh, he, we, we'd been buddies since college days. And he said, you stay with me. You're not driving back home. And I think I actually fell asleep on him. I was sitting on his couch. We were having a conversation, and I fell asleep on him while we were talking. S- sorry, Brad, wherever you are, I kind of rude. But, um, but at the, the end of that three-hour interview, they asked me all kinds of questions. And, and they, they looked at me, and they asked me one question was the final question. It was this. You know, three hours, the Lord knows what I said in that three hours because, like, again, I'm out. But then they asked me one, and it, boy, it made me stiffen up, and I was like, you know, they, got, they said, we got one more question. I'm like, oh, gee, this is the one where I don't get the job right here. They said, do you play softball? Are you a softball player? Well, heck, yeah, I'm a softball player. I'm like, good Lord, I've found a church that that's one of their interview questions. Do you play softball? Heck, yeah. So I said, yes, I do. Well, it turned out that... Um, it was too late in the, in the season for me to be able to play with them, so I had to wait all winter and, and come around, wait for the spring. So in the off-season, um, the uniform back then, was, it was a maroon shirt with gold lettering and a maroon hat, gold lettering on the hat. Why am I telling you all this? You'll, you'll see in a minute. And so being ever the fashion plate that I am, I went out and got the gold coach, uh, uh, bike coaches shorts. Fellas, do you remember those? sexy now let me tell you i'm telling you had the had the gold bike coaches shorts and the socks the stirrups you know and the cleats and the hat and the whole deal and the 
gold wristbands, a whole deal. And we were also able to find, Bennett was about two years old, we were able to find a matching shirt with number, had his name on the back. We found him a pair of little gold shorts that he could wear, and he had some little spikes. And, of course, I always had a, a, you know, a bat bag and all my gear in there, and he had a little bag and had a bat in it. And so I would, you know, we, we, somewhere there's a picture of me and Bennett with our backs to the camera, and, and there's dad and son, and we're identical. And so first game comes along, and, and he goes with us, you know, and he's got his little bag, and I've got my bag, and I warm up with the fellas, and he's watching, and he wants me to throw to him. So, you know, do we do a little bit of that and warm him up a little? And then I was, back in that day, I was a little faster. I could run a little faster, and they would, sometimes they would have me lead off. I would be the very first batter, and so I would, you know, get in the batter's box and, and take my practice swings. I didn't know all this at the time, but Bennett, two years old, got his own bat. He's on the other side of the fence, and he's got his bat, and he's watching me, and every time I would take a swing, he would take a swing, and he would watch Dad, and as the ball would come in, if it looked like I was going to swing at it, he would take a swing, and when I would hit the ball and drop the bat, he would swing and drop the bat, and I would dig for first base and run as hard as I could. Bennett, on the other side of the fence, running as hard as he could, you know, trying to get to first base. And I didn't realize that was going on until my wife said, hey, you need to pay attention. I know you're busy, but you need, to, you need to check out what's going on next to you. And sure enough, he would run as hard as he could, and then he'd get to where he thought base would be, and he'd just kind of, you know, do that slide thing. So cool. Until you realize, wait a minute. He's watching every move you make. He's watching every move you make. I was in my office not long after that. My office phone rang. It was my wife, and she said, let me tell you what your son just did. Now, you know it's not good when it starts like that. Let me tell you what your son just did. What did my son just do? She said, he just walked into our bathroom lifted up the lid, and spat in the toilet. I said, yeah, if you'd knock that off, he would stop doing that. (laughs) Uh, It was really me. But again, it was a reminder that you're being watched. He wanted to be just like his dad. He was imitating dad, and when it came to softball, he he wanted to run like his daddy. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We follow him and we try to imitate as closely as we can what is modeled for us. How does Jesus walk? How does Jesus see? Who does Jesus invite? Who does Jesus include? We want to be just like that. One of our goals at Cross Lane is that in our attempt to imitate Jesus, our lives would be transformed. In Luke chapter 6, we read these words, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be, what's it say, like their teacher. Jesus is saying the goal here is not for you to just listen to me. The goal is for you to become like me. The student has been properly and fully trained when he is like the teacher. I have said many, many times, and I stand by this statement, following Jesus is by far the hardest thing I have ever tried to do in my life because it involves emptying myself, humbling myself, and that does not come easily for me, and I don't think that comes easily for any of us. In fact, the Bible literally talks about us dying to ourself. You want to follow Jesus? You want to know what it means to follow Jesus? It means dying to yourself. Jesus said, take up a cross, follow me. 
In that time, if you saw somebody with a cross over their shoulder, it meant one thing. They were about to die. That's what Jesus said. It's hard. Very difficult to, to follow Jesus and to imitate him. Today, as we look at him, he is on, not on a hillside as he's been in the past couple of weeks as we've kind of gone into our sermon time, but, but he's, he's in a house. He's surrounded by his disciples He's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee in the city of Capernaum, and this was basically Jesus' headquarters. Isn't that beautiful? That's the ruins of the city of Capernaum today. He was raised in the city of Nazareth. He spent a lot of time in Capernaum. He's inside a house, and he is about to ask a very challenging question. If you've got your Bible, I would like for you to turn to Mark chapter 9. If you just turn to Mark chapter 9. Uh, I love it when you follow along and, and write and take notes and highlight and do all that stuff. I think it'll, it'll benefit you greatly. And um, if you're here today and you, you don't have a Bible, talk to me. We can make sure you get a Bible. If you forgot, don't worry about it. We'll put it on the wall for you today. We're happy to do that. Some of you I know, um, you, you follow along on your phone. People around them, they're, hopefully they're not looking at Twitter. If they are, leave them alone. But you know, a lot of them are on their phones. They're following along with the, the YouVersion Bible app, which is a great, if you don't have that, you should have that. Um, that's cool too. So Mark chapter 9, verse 33 says this. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Now, caution. <laughs> you remember when you were, you'd gone out the night before and you came in later than you should have, maybe you missed curfew, and your parents, your mom looked at you and said, what time did you get in last night? You know she already knows the answer, right? She already knows the answer. No sense lying to her. She knows the answer. If you lie, you're in deep doo-doo. Don't do that. Same thing with Jesus. Jesus didn't ask questions he didn't know the answers to when he's asking the question. He already knows the answer, but he asked the question. We're walking down the road. Jesus can hear, clearly hear some commotion going on behind him. There's an argument. There's some kind of debate. Now they're in the house, and Jesus says, hey, I heard that conversation on the way back. What were you guys arguing about? So Jesus asked the question, and the response from the disciples was nothing. Nobody said a word. Vast amounts of silence. And in verse 34, we find out why. But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Are we 12? I mean, are we so immature that that's what we're doing? We're hanging out with Jesus and we're arguing about who's the greatest? So let me just say before we get started... The teaching that Jesus is about to give as he responds to this situation can radically change your life. If you're a 13, 14, 15-year-old little girl, middle school age, this is going to radically affect who you see, who you include, who you invite. If you're a 45-year-old girl, this is going to radically affect who you see, who you include, and who you invite. It doesn't matter your job, it doesn't matter your socioeconomic level, what Jesus is about to say can really change the way you deal with people and how you treat them. The disciples have had this argument, who was the greatest, and, and they're sitting in this house and Jesus just asked them about it, and they're, they're silent, and you wonder, what will Jesus say next? Today's message is broken up into three parts. Part one is about deep longing, deep longing. 
Let's not kid ourselves. What the disciples were arguing about is something that resides in all of us. But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Who is number one? You remember these? I imagine if the disciples had had one, they'd have had it on their hand. I'm number one. And we would look at that and we would say, those guys are idiots, man. What's wrong with them? I can't believe Jesus picked those guys to be disciples. So the question is, what's really going on in this story? Let's think it through a little bit. If for hundreds of years it had been prophesied that a Messiah was going to be sent to your people, and you think he has come, and you're hanging out with him, and he's done some things to kind of demonstrate already, okay, he's pretty special. Like, he's done some things that have wowed you already. Like, hey, I don't know anybody else that can do what that dude just did. So there's something different about him. He seems to be special. You know, jury may still be out a little bit, but I got to hand it to you. He looks like the real deal. He's healed some people that can't walk. He's restored the blind to some folks. And people are coming from everywhere to hear him speak. And then he narrows his focus and he brings it down to where he invites these 12 guys to spend time with him. And now you're one of the 12. That's pretty big stuff. If you think you're hanging out with the Messiah, the one who has been promised to your families for generations, right? You've been looking for this guy for a long, long time and you have been selected to be a part of his elite team, wow, that's big stuff. But what is your role on the team? Are you the star quarterback? Or are you the third string long snapper? You know what that guy is? That's the guy that snaps the ball to the punter. Usually third string, nobody, I guarantee you, nobody was putting his name on the little marquee on television yesterday as you watch the college football game. The third string long snapper, nobody knows that dude's name. But the disciples want to know, where do I rank among the 12? See, what, normally, what we normally think of is Jesus traveling down the road and he has these 12 disciples behind him. Sometimes that's the way it was. But once in a while, he would, it would sound like this, Peter James and John, you come go with me. The rest of you stay here. I want the rest of you to come go with me. You, you guys just hang out right here. We'll be right back. Now, if you're one of the nine and you don't get selected to go off to the special place with Jesus, how's that sitting with you? I don't like that. I have a deep longing. These, these other guys are getting special treatment. I, I want that. You think there would be any issues among the other nine that didn't get to go with Jesus when he asked them to go? On top of that, James and John and Peter and Andrew are a set of brothers within the 12. There's these two sets of siblings. Uh, James and John are brothers, and Peter and Andrew are brothers. And Jesus looks at them and says, James and John, uh, um, you come go with me, and uh, Peter, you come go with me. Now, you're Andrew. And brother Peter got asked to go with Jesus, and these two brothers are brothers, and they got asked to go with Jesus, but you got left out. Now you're Andrew. How are you feeling right now? Is that deep longing kind of rising up in you? Like, hey, I want to be, I want to be included. See, right before this argument over who is the greatest, Jesus grabs James, John, and Peter, and he says, I want you to go with me. You got to understand this. So before this discussion happens with the disciples about who's the greatest this other thing happens jesus looks at 
James, John, and Peter, and he says, come go with me. And they climb this hill, and on top of this hill, something happens called the transfiguration. It's this miraculous thing that happens. Jesus, like, takes on this, this bright white. His clothes get bright white, brilliant white. His face lights up. I mean, he's transformed into something really magnificent. It's miraculous. And Peter, James, and John are privy to that, okay? They get to see this whole thing. And, and, and this is what's going on right before these guys have a, a discussion about who's going to be number one, who's going to be the greatest, and as, as these guys are seeing this on this mountain, remember the other nine are down below. They, have, they don't get to see all this. It's just Peter, James, and John. They hear a voice out of heaven that says, this is my son, I love him, and you need to listen to him. And then on the way back down the mountain, <laughs> Jesus turns to these three disciples. Remember, the other nine are not there. And he says, oh, by the way, don't tell anybody what you just saw today, okay? Don't tell anybody. Really? And so they get to the bottom of the mountain and they walk up on an argument. There's these, these nine disciples. There are a bunch of religious experts and religious leaders and there's this man and his son and they're having this kind of a heated discussion. This argument has broken out and Jesus walks up to the three with the three and he says, hey, what's up? And the dad looks at Jesus and he says, I brought my demon-possessed son to your disciples and they said they could get the demon out and they tried, but they couldn't. Can you imagine the look on the faces of the nine? Not only did they not get invited to go up on the mountain to be one of the three that are going to be with Jesus, but they got left behind. And on top of that, they said they could cast a demon out. They tried and they failed. Okay, it's not a great day if you're one of the nine. This is, you're like, you're feeling like the guy that bats last in lineup, right? I mean, it's just not fun. That's what happened right before Jesus hears this argument as they're traveling down the road. You can kind of imagine the disciples walking down the road and one of them going, Peter, what, you know, what did you guys do while you, where did you go and what did you do while you were with Jesus? And Peter responds, well, Jesus told us not to say anything. But it was awesome. I mean, it was so incredible. But I'm not supposed to tell you what I saw. How do you think something like that might sit if you're one of the nine disciples that didn't get to go up and see what the other three saw? I can just imagine it. Oh, come on, Peter. Would you just please give me a break with this high and mighty thing? And Peter responds, oh, you want to come at me? How's, it go How's the uh, casting out demons business going for you these days? <laughs> See, it's easy to read this in the Bible and to assume that, it, that it's an immature conversation, but I think it's probably more accurate to think that this is a pretty big discussion as to who was more important. And the fact that Jesus had taken three of them aside probably helped to facilitate this whole conversation. So they get to the house, and Jesus asks, hey, guys, that argument, what was that argument about? Now, Jesus knew, and nothing. These guys don't say a word, which is probably smart for them. I would caution you at this point against placing yourself above the characters in this story, as if somehow you wouldn't do this. I think the more realistic and accurate thing to do is to place yourself among the characters and to say, you know what, I can be the exact same way. 
Because I think the deep longing that was alive in them and the deep longing that is alive in us is this. I want to be seen. I want to feel included. I want the people around me to feel that I'm important. It's important to me that I'm viewed as somebody that matters. I want to count. I want it to matter. Is it too much to to ask that I would be not be invisible to somebody else. I don't want somebody to just look right through me. I want to be included. I want to be invited. I want to matter. I want to count. The argument that the disciples are having was probably more about deep longing, something that I think we all have. Do I matter? Do I count? And I think that's something that we all struggle with at our core, deep longing. It was alive in them, it's alive in us. Second part of this, part two, is keeping score. In our culture, when we have something important to say, this, the leader stands up and you know, they call people to him. But in Jesus' time, it didn't work like that. In Jesus' time, the rabbi sat down to, to teach. So when you saw the rabbi sit down to teach, you knew it's time to listen. It's, he's going he's to tell us something. And Jesus sits down and and. You need to know that this is not a casual conversation. Jesus is about to make a pronouncement. He's about to say something really important, and it's something that they needed to hear, and we needed to hear. In verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the 12. Like, come in. Don't, I don't want you to be on the periphery. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. Now, it's really easy to read that and rush past it and not see something that he didn't do. What's interesting here is that Jesus does not criticize their desire for greatness. I think that's interesting. Not in this conversation and really not in any other conversation do you find Jesus criticizing their desire to be great. He doesn't say, you shouldn't want to be great. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you want, your li- you want to be great? You want your lives to count? That's a bad instinct. He never says that. I think it's hardwired in us to, to desire to excel, right? Like all of us in the room, there's something that you know more about than any of us know, know about. I'm sure if we talk to you long enough, you are an expert on something and would know more about it than anybody else in the room. I'm looking across the room. Some of you know more about cars than any of us in the room. Some of you know more about books. Some of you know more about how to fix houses. Some of you know more about cooking I mean, you, you would talk and the rest of us would take notes because you would be the foremost expert on that thing in the room. We all have something that when you hit on that with us, we light up because we know more about it than anybody else. We all want to be great at something. Here's what Jesus doesn't say. Listen, you're arguing about greatness. Don't try to be great. He doesn't say that. What he says is, I would like to show you a pathway to greatness. You are not keeping score the right way. I want you to keep score, but I want you to understand how to keep score in the name of greatness. So if you want to be great, I will count you great when you do two things. Now, just let me ask you, if you were sitting with Jesus and he was about to tell you what would make you great in his eyes, okay, He's about to tell you two things that'll make you great in his eyes. You think you're going to perk up to hear what he has to say? Like you don't want to know what Jesus thinks makes you great to him? I'm all ears, Jesus. What do you want to say? I'm all ears. 
Jesus says there are two things that will make you great. Number one, you got to be last. And then you got to be servant of all. Understand that in this moment, Jesus has just flipped the entire system that these guys have grown up under. This is foreign to their ears. They'd never heard anything like this before. And I would argue, and history would bear this out, the concepts of humility and servanthood as a form of greatness or virtue were non-existent before Jesus came along. Before Jesus, you never heard people talk about humility as a virtue. You did not hear it. Study wrote the Roman Empire, and what you see are statues everywhere, buildings with people's names on them, um, uh, uh, signs and and inscriptions all around the cities to someone's greatness because everybody aspired to be great. And no, you you were never considered great if you were humble. To be humble was a bad thing in Jesus' day until he comes along and he flips the script. It was uh, up until then, it's all about being great. It's about being noticed. It's about being remembered and, 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 and getting credit. And for your name to be a name that was remembered through the ages. And not a lot has changed because we can wake up in the morning saying things like, I want to be seen. I want to be invited. I want to be included. I want to matter. I want to count. I want to have value to other people. And Jesus flips that whole thing upside down and he says, the mark of greatness is, who do you see? Who do you invite? Who are you including? And who do you treat as valuable? And do you see people like I see them? And do you see them as people that you can serve? This is about humble servanthood. When Jesus says you will be last, he's talking about humility. What a fascinating word. It is my belief that the pursuit of Jesus is really nothing more than the pursuit of humility. Humility is such an elusive thing, and I think that it's probably true that you will not grow in humility if you're thinking a lot about humility. It's just, it's just the way it works. Am I more humble this year than I was last year? Can I be more humble next year than I was this year? I think I'm more humble this year than I was last year. It just doesn't sound right. In college, I heard this quote, and I never forgot it. About the time you think you're humble, you're probably not. Maybe instead of asking the question, am I humble, we should ask the question, how do I treat people? How do I treat people, let me ask you this, how do you treat people that are beneath you? See, in your mind right now, you're going, beneath, that's not a good word, Brett, that's not a good word. Yeah, I get it, I know. So let's try this. How do you treat someone who is far less educated than you are? How do you treat someone who's maybe overeducated but not real bright? How do you treat somebody who's stuck in a lower level job and they're probably never going to get out of it? I'm not talking about somebody that just started there. I'm talking about somebody that's been there for a while and you just don't seem to be able to, be able to move on. How do you treat that person? My father drove a truck his entire life. My dad never went past the seventh grade. To sit down and have a conversation with my dad, you better be ready to talk about trucks or racing or cars 
you're not going to talk about golf with dad. You're not going to talk about baseball or basketball. You're not going to talk about anything highbrow, you know, fine wine or anything like that. When I was growing up, I grew up in a little subdivision on a street called Surfwood Drive. And, and we lived at the bottom of the hill. And at the top of the hill was this beautiful house. In that era, it was the nicest house in our neighborhood. And it was owned by my best friend's father. His name was Bill Funk. My best friend's name was Teddy. Teddy and I ran around together. And, uh, and Mr. Funk was a very, very prominent attorney in our town. He was a partner in a huge law firm. His name appeared in the sign. And uh, he was a very important man in our city. And at 12, 13 years old, I can still remember, I will never forget, Mr. Funk pulling into our driveway where he had just thought about my dad and he'd picked up a bottle of wine. My dad didn't even drink wine. My dad was a beer guy. But he would, he would have this fine bottle of wine and he would bring it as a gift for my father. Or it might have been a, you know, a, fifth of scotch or something like that and i watched mr funk on more than one occasion he and his wife mary lee would come down and pick up my mom and dad and he had his firm had season tickets to the reds great seats and they would take my parents and and they would escort them in they would they had great parking they they literally walked right through a door right into their seats dad raved about he talked about how good mr funk had been to him now mr funk could have spent time with anybody anybody in our city and he chose to spend time with a man with a seventh grade education who is my father and i never forgot it and to this day i think bill funk was an amazing very kind compassionate man how do you treat people that aren't that interesting how do you treat people that bore you that have never really been anywhere can't really talk about anything you know, you've traveled the globe and seen all this stuff, and you sit down next to them. You ever been out of the state of Indiana? Nope, I don't want to. Well, this conversation's over, right? How do you treat them? How do you treat people who are decidedly unattractive, what I call people with an, an unfortunate face? How do you treat the aged? Do you treat them as obsolete, worn out, used, of no value? Jesus said, you want to have a conversation about greatness? We can do that. I'll mark it out for you. Anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. The question is not, am I included? Am I invited? Am I seen as important? The question is, who do I see? Who do I include? Who do I invite? Who do I make feel important? Jesus took this whole conversation and concept and he flipped it upside down. I want to be seen. No. Who are you seeing? Who are you walking past that you need to stop and you need to recognize? Is it the little girl that's selling you gas? The little girl at the convenience store that going to buy the ice that you just, you know, she, you see her name tag, but you just don't even pay attention. Is that who it is? Jesus isn't done teaching. They're in this house. The Twelve disciples are there. He has himself seated in order to get their attention. <clears throat> Come to the third part of the conversation. It's about welcoming God. We have a deep longing in the heart to know that we count. And we need to relearn how to keep score. Jesus said, what counts most in my kingdom is the person who reaches out and reaches down and includes others. And now he's going to talk about welcoming God. Verse 36, he took a little child whom he placed among them, 
Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Welcome the child, and you welcome me. Welcome me, and you welcome the one who sent me. Follow the progression. He pulls this child out because this child has no status, especially in that culture. This conversation goes way beyond children. He uses a child because they have no earning power. They have no really developed talent at this point. He's going to use someone whose chief talent is getting underfoot. Let's be honest. You've never been to a place with your kids like, would you just please get out of the kitchen? We've been there, haven't we? You love them, but God love them. Get out from underneath my feet. Your status does not skyrocket when you hang out with little kids. And Jesus says something powerful. Welcome the child and you've welcomed me. Invite the child, you've invited me. Disinvite the child and you've disinvited me. Despise them and you've despised me. It will take the disciples a long time to get this, to learn who Jesus sees and includes and invites. And it was going to take the disciples some time to flip the scales upside down so that they came up with some different ways of treating people and wake up with some new questions. Who will I see? Who will I invite? Who will I include? And who, will, who have I formerly seen as invisible that I will no longer see as invisible? I'm sure it was not original with my youth pastor. That's okay. Something does not have to be original for it to be true. I prove that every week. But you can tell a lot about a person by how they treat those who can do nothing for themselves. That's a quote I heard my youth pastor say when I was 16 years old. You can tell a lot about a person by how they treat someone who can do nothing for them. I never forgot it. In John chapter 4, we find the story of Jesus and his disciples are traveling. The disciples go on to buy food. They come back out. They discover Jesus having a conversation with this woman. What? Men didn't talk to women in that day. Sad to say, in Eastern culture then and even now, women were treated as as second-class citizens. I don't think that's proper, but that's the way it was. And the disciples come back, and Jesus is engaged in this deep conversation. Beyond that, she's not even from their ethnic group. She's Samaritan. He's a Jew. They never talk to each other. So here's this Jewish man talking to this Samaritan woman. It gets worse. She's burned through about four marriages. They come back and find him talking to her. They cannot believe what they see. She's known as the woman at the well, and Jesus is in a full-on conversation with her about being living water and how there's a thirst in her soul and how he can slake that thirst in her soul. And the disciples see this, and they cannot believe that he is talking to her. They hadn't figured it out yet. They hadn't learned how to imitate Jesus. They hadn't learned to see like Jesus sees and include like Jesus includes and invite the way Jesus invites. People want to take shots at Jesus. Ladies, let me tell you something. Ladies had no status until Jesus came along and gave them status. Jesus was revolutionary, and he recognized women before anybody ever recognized women. And he gave them worth and value and dignity, and he said, you matter. You matter greatly to me. We're looking at this story in Mark 9. In Mark chapter 10, these these women are bringing their kids to Jesus. They want him to be blessed, and and the disciples are like, no, no, you you don't leave him alone. Can you imagine that? The disciples are saying, leave Jesus alone, and Jesus is like, come on, man, let the kids come to me. Leave them alone. Let them come to me. 
Because the disciples had not learned to see the way Jesus sees and had not learned to invite and include and treat people as valuable. There is a deep longing in us to say, will someone please notice me? Will someone please include me? Will someone please make me feel important like I matter? We all want that. That longing is so deep that it can at times blind us to the number of people who come in and out of our lives unseen, unimportant, unnoticed in the movie chicago it's a musical and there is a scene where uh, john c Riley is he's a he plays the role of a husband who feels forgotten and invisible in his world and the image that he uses is is the image he calls himself mr cellophane here are the lyrics to the song mr cellophane 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 should have been my name, Mr. Cellophane, because you can walk right by me and you can look right through me and never know I'm there, Mr. Cellophane. You can walk right through me, walk right by me and look right through me and never know that I'm there. I got two questions for you. Who floats in and out of your world? that is largely unseen by you? Second question is, what would it look like for you to change that and flip that and make that different? When I was in middle school, there were two kids that I went to middle school with. There was a little girl who had an unfortunate face. She wasn't very pretty. In fact, she was really unattractive. I bet she's beautiful today. But when she was 14, not so much. Her name was Jenny Gant. There was a 14-year-old boy. His name was Roger Hahn. Nobody ever talked to Jenny, and nobody ever talked to Roger. Roger was just weird. He had really, really blonde hair. He had hands that were, you know, they, they were just small, and if you ever shook his hand, it was clammy and cold. He almost felt dead, and when he talked, he stuttered, and he didn't, he didn't speak well. He, just, he was socially awkward, and nobody talked to these two kids. I saw them every day. And I went to a retreat. And I heard my youth pastor say, you can tell a lot about somebody by the way they treat somebody. They can do nothing for them. And I never forgot it. And I went to school. And this doesn't make me great, okay? I'm not suggesting that. Just, a, just an illustration. I went to school intent on seeing Jenny Gant Went to school intent on talking to Roger Hahn, who could do nothing for me other than bring me ridicule for even sitting next to him at lunchtime. But that's what I did. Because I had a youth pastor that was able to help me see everybody wants to be included, 
Everybody's important, and you can tell a lot about somebody by the way they treat somebody who can do absolutely nothing for them. Who is Jenny Gant for you? Who is Roger Hahn? Just waiting for you to see him and notice them and touch them and speak to them and include them and make them matter and love them. That is what Jesus calls greatness. Let's pray. Lord, we can be so blind. There are people that we are walking past every day who are just begging for somebody to notice them. Would you give us eyes to see? Would you help us for 10 seconds to just get out of our comfort zone and include somebody that needs to be included? Would you help us risk our reputation, risk our money, risk our time, our valuable time, and our comfort, and reach out to somebody and love them, truly love them, with the love of Jesus? Would you confront us this week with our selfishness? Would you confront us this week with our blindness? And would you help us to step into a new reality, which is you call us to love those people that the world would call unlovely. And that is deep. And that is spiritual. And that is what it looks like to run like Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray.